Hello, and welcome to Endeavors. On today's show, journalist and poet Melissa Bond on her memoir, Blood Orange Night. That's coming up on Endeavors. Well, hi there. Happy Friday and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. 10 days. 10 days until I leave for Edinburgh and my European adventure. It's uh yeah, it's uh it's upon us and I'll still be doing the show, but like I said it might be a little bit uh, different, and if you don't hear from me for a couple of weeks, that's probably why, because I'm probably just trying to get used to my new temporary surroundings. I'll be in Scotland for a couple months, and then coming back to Canada for a bit, and then maybe going back. We'll see. Speaking of people who have been on journeys, my guest today, Melissa Bond, has quite the extraordinary tale. She is a poet and journalist who was working as a reporter for a small Utah-based newspaper. And after she had her kids, she started having trouble sleeping and her body was doing different things. And so her doctor recommended Ativan and, uh, you know, some medication. And she eventually became addicted to benzodiazepines, benzos, uh, to the point where it affected her marriage, affected her work, affected her parenting, affected everything. She eventually got out of it as she was driving herself to rehab. And six years later, five years later, she's written it all down in a frank, stark, and beautifully written memoir called Blood Orange Night. Uh, Melissa joined me a few days ago to talk about the book. This is me with Melissa Bond. Melissa Bond, hello. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm super happy to be here talking with you. Uh, the book is Blood Orange Night. And, you know, it, it's interesting because you you have made your living as a reporter and as a journalist and as a poet. And they often say reporters don't like to become the story, you know. Oh, yes. Um, but 
for you, why was now the right time to tell this? Oh gosh. Um, such a beautiful question. You have a, another one though, I think coming on the heels or should I jump in? No, no, you can, you can jump in. It's okay. <laughs> so, um, you're exactly right. I mean, the last thing I ever wanted was to write a memoir, right? Because I'm a, I'm a journalist, I'm a poet, I'm a fiction writer. So I loved exploring ideas and digging into things, um, and looking outside of myself, but I was also a narrative journalist. So I loved kind of having using myself as a character which which in some ways like suddenly my life became the central character of a narrative that i felt absolutely had to be told so um i'll start by giving kind of a high level overview of the book and then then i'll dive into why so so the book is really about my very unintentional um, dependency upon a class of drugs called benzodiazepines. So your listeners will be familiar with like Xanax, you know, Justin Bieber has, has announced that he's had a real problem with it. Chance the Rapper, lots and lots of um, folks that we know in Hollywood, but in our everyday lives have them in our, their medicine cabinets, Clonopin, um, Valium. Um, I was prescribed it for sleep during my second, after my second pregnancy, I was having pathological insomnia and subsequently became radically physically dependent and was told I could not get off um, really in any easy way. It would take like a year or I would have a fatal seizure. So this, you know, the story is kind of about this like stun of being this incredibly healthy, vital person, and then suddenly falling into this crevasse of disability that happened really fast um, by my, you know, doctor prescribed, you know, medicine. So, um, and then my crawl out of it, which is a long and harrowing journey. But uh, what I, what I found was that there were two things. First of all, you know, throughout our history, we're constantly trying new medications. They get pushed out too fast. And we have a long and kind of sordid history of suddenly finding, oh my, oh my gosh, these things are horrific. How could we do this? You know, um, and, you know, this is going back to when we first began medicine, but these I found were causing such a severe slide into disability. And there's not a real awareness because they're so nuanced and so multifaceted and how they impact the body that it's, it's not just a, um, a sudden overdose. It's this slow slide into disability that happens because the brain is being dysregulated. And I, when I started blogging about it, Dan, I was getting so many emails from people, I, you know, and I was still in the midst of withdrawing and it took almost a year and a half emails saying, oh my gosh, I, I just got one the other day from this young man who said his mother was on the same one I was on, which is called Ativan. She was trying to withdraw and she suffered a psychotic break and, and killed herself. And, and he's devastated. I get emails like this all the time. And so it felt to me like this story was so much bigger than me um, and so important, especially now in the wake of COVID and the pandemic and the endemic, there's so much, there's so much suffering. And as a culture um, in Western civilization, we really still are moving towards the, the quick fix, which of course I, you know, I was, I was grateful. I was like, give me a two by four to my head or something <laughs> to help the insomnia. You know, and and unfortunately, it was a it was a jump into a horrific crevasse that I couldn't have even imagined. You know, it's interesting because 
it, it, in part of the title of the book, you, you, you call it a story of accidental addiction. Yes. Which I think is interesting. I mean, mainly because obviously no one sets out to, 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 to be an addict, but, um, why, why did you want to use that specific phrase, accidental addiction? Yeah. I'm so grateful that you bring that up because it's a huge topic of conversation because I, I also, what I found was, you know, I mean, this was something my doctor had prescribed it. I followed my doctor's orders and my intention was only to find relief from this, this radical physical suffering of, of debilitating insomnia, like couple of hours a night at max for months and months. Um, and, and in, in the community of people who suffer from illness, that is kind of, um, that has as its cause a doctor's prescriptions, there's a real reluctance to use the term addiction because there carries with it this cultural anvil of shame that sits so heavily on people's chest. Um, and it speaks, I, I mean, for me, this is this is a whole separate cultural issue of how we treat people who do intentionally use um, different kinds of drugs, whether they be street drugs or pharmaceuticals, to shift a, a state of suffering. So there's an intentionality and then kind of a, a you know, a just intention to follow a doctor's orders. But what I would say is that shame uh, is something that I do not want to be there for either people who intentionally use it to reduce suffering or people who follow their doctor's prescriptions to reduce suffering. The bottom line is there is suffering and, and to add shame on top of it is to, to like take a second sword to an injury. Is that why, because I, I noticed um, on, on your website, you, you, you use dependency. Mm -hmm. would, do you, would you say that there's a difference between being dependent and being addicted? It, I would say yes, and it may be um, just speaking to the cultural language. You know, I'm speaking to like the way we use it culturally. And again, an addict has that cultural anvil of shame. You know, something morally has gone wrong. And, and, and I'm speaking, I, I have to be really honest, this is where I get really gritty in, in the book, <laughs> in Blood Orange Night, because I grew up with a mother who was an addict. She uh, drank like a fish. She was using cocaine. And I felt this shame about that. And also I felt judgment towards her as if she had somehow chosen that over being kind of really vital and really alive in her life and being the kind of parent I wanted. What I experienced going through my own, you know, dependency, I say dependency because there was no like emotional need and because it was sort of an accidental dependency in the sense that had I known that my body would not be able to survive without them, I think that's the dependency. If I had stopped taking them, it would have been a fatal seizure or a psychotic break. Um, however, you're, I love how you're speaking so much to the nuance because what in my, in my process of discovery, I found that my mother was suffering tremendously from panic disorder, from being a single mother, from feeling totally overwhelmed. And that is an equal amount of suffering. 
So you're, you're hitting the gray areas so fast. <laughs> when I was reading it, one, I guess one thing or, or, or one person that came to mind was Russell Brand, just because of, uh, you know, regardless of what you think of his views now, just a, a lot of the, the, the advocacy work he has done for, for addicts and how he's trying to not, you know, he, he's trying to push back on, 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 on the victim blaming um what what has somebody like him done for for the conversation that we have around addiction and 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 victims rights and all that oh wow um i will say from from what i i'm i'm you know i love russell um i feel like he has created one of the things that i've said in my um discussions around the book is that when i was writing it i felt like there was not a narrative around addiction or dependency that was out there that i was aware of that i could speak to i had suffered there was there was suffering there were doctor prescriptions, and then there was sort of dependency, but where, where was blame there? And I think what Russell is trying to do is to say, we're headed in the wrong direction, both in the way we treat people who are addicted or dependent. Um, and, and when I say treat, I mean um, how we help them get off physically, but also how we treat them in our minds and culturally. You know, there's the level of compassion that we offer and, and how that impacts the way they interact in the world. And so I think he is one who is really trying to carve out a new narrative. And for that, I am just have tremendous amount of respect um, and humility and appreciation. You, you, you mentioned your mother and, you know, it's interesting because we all, I think when we're young, we all sort of worry that we're going to become too much like our parents in, you know, in a way, you know, you know, but here you are now, you're, you're now all, you know, you're now also a single mother and, you know, you, you went through a lot of the similar things that your mom did. Um, so do you, do you think it's genetic then in a way? And, and, and are you worried that you're becoming too much like your mother? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's one of the questions that was um, that I thought about. So I have this scene in the book. Uh, I don't want to give away too much, but I'm, I'm actually um, being driven to uh, a doctor who I'm, who I've been told can help me get off these drugs. I've been trying for five months and I realize, holy cow, I am 42 and I'm driving to see this doctor to try to get off of benzodiazepines. My mother was 40 when she drove herself to a rehab facility to get off cocaine and alcohol. And that juxtaposition really prompted the question that you just asked, am I just wedded somehow to my bloodline in a way that I cannot, um, step away from. And I, I, I wrestled with that. That was like the demon that I wrestled with for a long time because it felt as though in that I would have no choice, um, in that, that it was some fate somehow was something I couldn't escape. And where, where I've landed is a much more, I think, spiritual and nuanced place in that, um, for me, the beauty that has come out of it now, and you'll have to forgive me. I have a cat that's eating my foot right now. Let me see if I can get it. <laughs> zoom, zoom, the zoom cat, right? <laughs> yeah, he's very, he's very um, excitable. Um, 
where I landed was this incredible sense of grace in that it gave me this experience. Everything I wanted to step away from was, was anything that had to do with addiction because I had so much judgment around that because of what I experienced with my mother. And while I would never in, in a million years wish the experience of, of becoming dependent, addicted, whatever term we want to use within this new narrative, um, I would never wish that upon anyone because it's, it's horrific. Um, it gave me this compassion that I had really wanted to have for understanding my mother, for understanding the people around me who suffer, and for understanding, I think, my culture. We have a culture that is so, so imbued with anxiety and so has so much pressure and so little community that's really built in that, of course, addiction and suffering is, is like just the dark side of that. So... Um, I, I think, ironically, I was the person in my family least likely to become addicted and the one best served by it. What did, you, what did your experience teach you about the nature of addiction in, in a more broad sense? I, I really am more in the camp with Russell. I think we have a lot of social and economic issues to look at. Um, I think really, and you know, it's interesting because um, Dan, I was studying this back when I was in my twenties, I was reading a lot of Jungian philosophy and I knew that um, um, Jung looked at the various substances and said, what is the essence of that substance? And that is the medicine that people are looking for. So with alcohol, we, he would say we were looking for more spirit. And I thought that makes sense to me. We are looking for things to assuage our anxiety, to help us feel more connected. And so for me, um, now I feel like whether it's alcohol or I'm sorry, whether it's addiction, whether it's dependency, there's, there's this suffering that I think is a culture we need to look at. And I think we feel more alone than we're willing to admit. And I think that's the core of a lot of it. I, I wonder, I wonder if that's why they call it, or that, that's why they call drink spirits. Yes. Right. Right. <laughs> there's a, there's a sense of like, it's a depressant, but there's also a sense of like um, more unity and less ego. There's like a little ego dissolution that happens. Yeah. I, I think we're so black and white about it in this culture. And it really um, leads us in a direction that is, very lacking in compassion and not doesn't lead us towards answers. You know, I think in, in, in a certain narrative, when you think about addiction, it's usually, you know, like street drugs and, and they're homeless and they're on, you know, like in a big city like LA or New York or, or Toronto and you're in Utah, you know? Um, and I'm just curious, you know, bec because it is a, a much smaller state, Mm. whether there was a, a different sort of stigma associated, you know, be, be, because, because you're not necessarily in, in a place where there are a lot of others like you, if that makes sense. 
Yeah. I, you know, the, I think there's two ways to answer that. It's, it's really, um, for those of, for those out there that are not familiar with kind of the Utah zeitgeist, it's a small state. Um, it's known mostly for, for being kind of the, the place where all the Mormon pioneers went and is like this huge, like it's, it's the place for Mormonism. It's, I live in Salt Lake city, which is, it which is much less, you know, it's maybe 45% Mormon, but, um, what I will say is that that generates like a particular, um, uh, I, I don't want to, do, I want to be careful in how I talk about Mormonism, but what I will say is I think because there's such a strong adherence to a very dominant religion here, there is a lot of um, following your doctor's orders. So there's less, probably less street drugs, drugs but we uh, are known for being very high consumers of um, pharmaceutical drugs. And, and I think because of the degree of repression, we have really high rates of benzodiazepine and um, SSRI use. So it's interesting. And, and people talk about it less, you know, there's, there's this like, oh, that's between me and my doctor, you know? And so you're, I, you know, I was raised in California, so I had much more um, comfort in talking about things like this. But when I started to talk about it, people would say to me, wait, what? You're trying to get off? Why would you do that? No one gets off those things. Like you just take that and life is better through chemistry. And I was like, my life is definitely not better through chemistry and my body was falling apart. So that was definitely an an easy statement, but. One, you know, we were talking about uh, you know, the, the nuanced language, uh, addiction and, and dependency. And in, we're, we're seeing language change a lot more now in subtle ways, you know, not just as it relates to addiction, you know, but whether you're, you know, whether you're talking about LGBTQ or, uh, I just saw an article on CNN that, you know, was talking about a saga player and they use the term limb difference, for example, you know, rather than disabled or handicapped, because, even though the player had one arm, they may not think of themselves as disabled, for example, even though we do. Um, as, as someone who is in journalism, um, how important are the words that we use? And how would, what would you say to the people that, you know, the, the critics that saying, oh, we're taking PC language too far? Mm. Oh, Dan, I love your questions because you are exactly right. I, um, as someone who is both like a journalist and so very specific and very aware of like, you know, current current trends with language, but also a poet. And so someone who um, I feel I'm digging into what feels the most true as far as I can go. Um, we are constantly in an in a language evolution as humans. And every new step um, feels as though it's taking things too far. That is constantly part of um, how we evolve as humans. And and I'm gonna go back a little bit and get a little philosophical on you because I love, um, I read a lot of Aristotle when I was in college and Aristotle speaks of language um, as, as a stamp into the wax of our minds so that it creates a form 
in which we can begin thinking about things. And I really found that I was like studying ancient Greek and I realized I was finding new ways of thinking about things as soon as that language was presented to me. You know, I mean, for the fir- first was the word, right? So, um, so for me, even if we're playing with language and it feels uncomfortable, it's so important for us to inhabit and start exploring that kind of language because it will provoke new thought within us. So it's a way of interrogating our own beliefs, which is 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 a really essential aspect of being a good human. Uh, you know, it's funny how you talk about. Um not funny, but it's interesting, you know, how your, your state is, is, you know, there's a, there's a a lot higher percentage of, of, of benzo use. And when the pandemic first started, I know that the, the stigma against big pharma was one of the reasons for vaccine hesitancy or, 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 or people, refusing to get the jab because they just thought big pharma, you know, big pharma was out to get them. Um, what, what would you, how would you res- respond to something like that? Um, people's resistance to big pharma just in general or. Yeah, I, I guess like, you know, or, or, or the fact that they, that they, you know, but that because big pharma did this to us, Therefore, we shouldn't get the vaccine because they're 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 going to do it to us that way instead. Now, yeah, I you know I think um, the the vaccines were kind of an interesting um, have been a really interesting thing to watch culturally. I what I see is a real reluctance to any kind of control by government. And I think there was a lot of fear around there that was less about big pharma, but that definitely people were looking into, you know, stem cells and and whether they were present. Sorry, I'm having cat issues again. (laughs) (laughs) The Zoom cat. Um, So I I think that one is going to take us a while to kind of piece out. But I think there really was a sense of... um, we don't want the government to tell us what to do. And yet, if we feel we go in to see our doctor and the doctor is offering something that will assuage our suffering, we are much more inclined. And especially, um, you know, anytime we feel if, if as though our rights are being violated, we push back. I know in the United States, when, when we instituted a seatbelt law, there was all kinds of uprising. Don't tell me that I have to wear my seatbelt. And now everyone is, you know, there's, there are very few people that get in an uproar if you ask them to buckle their seatbelt. So, um, you know, I think it's kind of a political backlash, but I think it is true that we become, there's a level of comfort and there's also a lexicon that kind of evolves around particular drugs that really speak to, and when I say lexicon, I mean like the cultural language that we have, you know, like what the late night talk show hosts are saying and what the comedians are saying. And that gives us a sense of, of either safety or violation. And it, you know, it's, I do find that we're in this interesting dichotomy because you know, in, in many ways, people are saying, oh, well, we can't trust the science, you know, you know, whether it's like with with climate change or with vaccines. And yet, well, you know, we're using a computer or, you know, you go into a doctor and, and get a pill and, and that science. And so we're seeing a lot of ways how science can can help us and also harm us. Um, uh, 
you know, as, as someone who has sort of been on, on both sides, both, you know, as, as a dependent and also a, a, an investigator, if, if, if you will, uh, what do you make of this sort of cultural war that, or this cultural dichotomy that, that we're seeing? Yeah, I, you know, I, I mean, I think you're exactly right. It's such a dichotomy and it's so stark. And I think it speaks to, we're really moving in a direction that feels like people are sort of trying to stake a claim somewhere, you know, and there are a lot of cultural wars that are being waged sort of in, in the media. And so the, what, you know, when you brought up the issue of language, that language is being circulated on a much broader and much more rapid scale than we've ever seen before because of what you and I are doing right now. You know, we can, yeah. there are podcasts out there. There's such a, a level of, um, I don't want to say like democratization of voices, but there is so much more availability for people to speak about and create language around things that they feel strongly about. And so I think, I, I'm not sure where it's gonna go. I'm I'm watching it, but I, I think um, it's people like like you and I that, that wanna continue to ask the questions instead of simply staking a claim, you know, and really saying science is good and beautiful. And so is interrogating our beliefs and where does that intersect? So how much would you say that the media informs society and how much does society inform the media? Oh, I, you know, wow, that is a juicy question. I would, my first answer is that there's, um, there's this constant flow. You know, it's like language and thought. I mean, it's really tricky because the media and um, social media in particular, there are algorithms that are constantly changing. So, so the question is whose voice is getting heard and whose voice is the loudest? Who has the biggest bullhorn, right? Um, and who has the biggest bullhorn really is constantly evolving. So, um, I think as with, you know, our sort of political discourse and who has power, there's there's a shift, but it feels as though it's going more rapidly right now. Um, so while while one may inform, you know, while the media may inform kind of the populace more strongly then the populace can kind of rise up and there's a new platform. So I think if we look kind of long term, it's a it's a real back and forth. One aspect that's, I think, often not talked about when discussing addiction is the impact it has on families. You know, we, we're, we're, we're so focused on the user or the supplier or, you know, um, the, the, the bigger picture. But, I mean, you, you have two teenagers now. Um, how, how did your um, situation affect the your your kids and 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 those around you yeah <clears throat> well I'll, I'll speak back so of course we were talking about my reflecting upon my upbringing you know and as a um 
I don't have this in the book, but as a, you know, as a young teenager, I remember my mom being in alcoholic rages and throwing me out of the house and me like knowing how to break into the house and having this sense of instability and insecurity about what would happen every day. And I felt very strongly that whatever I was going through, my main focus was to not to have as little of an impact on my family as possible. And I think we, so many people out there have someone in their families that have either suffered addiction or dependency and the ripple effect of that kind of instability is overwhelming. I have, I've one scene in the book where um, I have, I've been advised to create my own kind of rehab center because the US and I, I think in Canada as well, there's not really any kind of rehab center for a, a withdrawal that can take a year and a half. Insurance won't pay for it. I mean, it's just, it, we don't even know what to do with something like that. So, so I set up this kind of, I would go stay with some very dear friends that are like a second family to me um, at night so I could have my withdrawals <laughs> in essence and not have my family see it. I didn't want to, them to see me falling on the floor or vomiting or having muscle spasms. Um, and yet I think, I think culturally um, there's so little support this, you know, because of the social stigma families kind of hold together and do their best but there's, there's just very little support and it can just tear people apart, which is heartbreaking. Do you now consider yourself an advocate or, or an activist? And do you see, a, is there a distinguish between those two terms, advocate and activist? Yeah, there definitely is a distinction. So I am both. Um, I am an advocate for informed consent. Um, I am an advocate for greater, um, um, greater education about drugs, especially drugs that have been around for, these have been around for heavens, over 50 years. There's a lot that we know. It's really easy to find the information. Um, my activism is, um, I would say multifaceted and that feels like it's more of a, a sharp, sharper spear, you know, looking towards how can we change regulations? How can we ensure that, um, uh, that, that the warnings are, uh, there's a black box warning now on benzodiazepines that, that came in 2020, but doing things that will create policy that changes the way in which we distribute um, the medication and consume the medication. I know that that the FDA is under fire a lot for it. it not only they're, they're like, not only how they regulate certain things, but what they regulate, um, you know, and, and, and how long or, or, or short that process can be from that sort of level. What do you think needs to change in, in how, um, drugs like these are, are, are regulated? 
I will, I will speak to two things. Although what I would say is, is the way in which it's, it's so complicated and the way my brother, I'll say my brother's a scientist. He is working on creating supercharged T cells to fight cancer. So I see it from his perspective. That's not in the book, by the way, that's, (laughs) but um, so he is a a deep, deep scientist working with creating medications. Um, So I see the challenges within the system. What I will also say is we know very, very well that there's not transparency. We know that you can test drugs almost ad nauseum if you have enough funding and only offer the the trials that have been positive. So that's something that is, is, I think, incredibly dangerous. If we, you know, Prozac, I think this was written about in Prozac Nation, if, um, you know, Prozac did not have a lot of successful trials and the ones that weren't successful got shelved. So that's something that I think needs transparency and needs to change. I think also an idea of um, what means what's long-term? How do you test something long-term? Because these drugs were tested, I think, through eight to 10 weeks, and yet they're prescribed long-term all the time. So we have no idea really what happens in the brain. And so more of an adherence possibly to what the clinical trials have done and making sure that the prescribing habits don't you know, take a side road. You, you mentioned your, your your brother and the work that he's doing to fight cancer. I'm curious as if you think, could something like that be done to fight addiction in the brain? Um, I think I know I know Johan Hari has done a little bit of research into that, but it just tackling addiction at the source is is that something that is possible? I think it's a great question. Absolutely. I mean, I think. Um, my just belief system, and again, I'm always advocating for interrogating our own belief systems, but I think any kind of disease um, is both bodily disease, social disease, emotional disease. So for us to simply look at the body, at the chemistry, I think um, is, will only have a certain degree of benefit. I think we also have to look at the larger social social context around it. But I think we've I think um, in asking that question, you're saying, well, we what I see is that we've looked at it as a social problem for so long and as like an individual moral compass gone wrong problem. And I think it's very, very astute to say there's also very likely a chemical um, imbalance or something that's happened in the DNA or the brain that can be affected to make them less susceptible. Absolutely. With, with all the, the, the gun crime that's been happening, not only in the States, but, you know, we just had an inquiry here in Canada, we saw it in Japan and in, and in, and in Denmark. Um, the question of, you know, well, how, you know, do, did did the perpetrators have access to mental health services? You know, and and, and how much of a role does does mental health play in, in in gun crimes, especially mass, you know, like mass mass shootings? If if we had more mental health services, would that also help fight addiction? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think, um, especially if we're looking at it as a, a social and economic 
um, issue, a lot of people, and, and because it's so shameful, the more we create dialogue, the more there's ease of access to services and there's not that anvil of shame, the more people are going to go and get help sooner before addiction takes hold and really drags them down into the crevasse from which they can't really escape. Um, one issue that I think a lot of people are worried about these days is, especially for young kids, is technology addi addiction. It, you know, we're always on our phones or we're on social media. Um, as a parent who has kids kind of entering that age um and as someone who who has been through that what do you uh, what do you what do you how do you how do you worry about something like that oh i worry i you know i try to balance my worry with a healthy dose of humor <laughs> um and perspective you know um I also have watched The Social Dilemma and am very aware that there are images, you know, there are a number of things that are concerning at a very deep level for me. Um, the biggest thing I am aware of is that any kind of addiction, again, it's, it's the root of the addiction. What, what is being missed? What is the origin of suffering? And for me, there's, it's, it's loneliness, it's disconnection. And so, of course, you know, media or social media gives us this sense of connection that's not really genuine face to face. So for me and my children, trying to ensure that I teach them moderation, that we have lots of lots, lots and lots of face to face with other families, with their friends, and that we connect and we communicate. And then I talk to them like, what, why are you watching all of these ASMR videos? <laughs> <laughs> What's that about? Why is that so fun? Let's watch some of them together. So to me, it's about, you know, our social malaise. There has to be this, the, the inoculation against that, I think, is connection. So for me, it's connection with my kids and, and humor. How has the pandemic affected that? Um, gosh, I feel like I could write a whole book for parents about the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> um, so Blood Orange Night ends, when does it end? 2000 and, 15. So that's, you know, five years before the pandemic. Um, I would say, you know, kids were at home. I work full time. Plus I was, you know, finishing, finishing a book and promoting a book. So my kids um, had computers that were given to them by the schools. Um, I do want to say my, my son is one of those differently abled kids. I'm still working on the appropriate language for that or what feels right to me. He feels a little like a little bit of magic, unusual magic. That might be the language that I use right now. But um, so, you know, they were trying to connect in that. It, it was imperfect. Absolutely. But, yeah, they got a lot more media savvy and had a lot more media than I wanted them to. Um, and there was a lot more connection. They were in the house. So I was running around. What are you doing? So it was. Um, I think it was much more challenging for parents who were trying to work outside of the home. I just, I, my heart goes out to them. You know, just on the note of your son, my, my mom's in, in education and childcare. And she was saying that 
um, at least in, in her circle, they've kind of gone back to the term special needs. Mm. Um, they've, they've kind of, they've kind of circled back to that. Um, what are, what are your thoughts on, on that term? really keep chewing on this one you know the book so the book blood orange night was initially called dear little fish because it was a um when he was born just prior i had written a prose poem to him speaking this was before i knew he had down syndrome or autism and i spoke to how much i knew having a child would change my heart you know, um, and, you know, and then suddenly I had a child with, I use the term special needs a lot. I feel as though the challenge that we have is that these kiddos are different. They have a different, we're, and we're all different, right? I mean, you're, you and I are very different. And I, I joke about the fact that I have lots of special needs. You just can't see them quite as easily. So what I pay attention to is Anytime you have language, it's going to define as, you know, opposite or as different. So there's no way I can speak about my son without defining him as being different. There's um, uh, neurodiversity is another term that I've heard used, you know, and yet we all have neurodiversity. So I feel fine about having the language move around me. I like to use something that speaks to, to what's advantageous about his neurodiversity as opposed to having it be subtractive. Like disability feels to me subtractive, right. it's something absent. So as long as we're working with language that is supportive and more inclusive and curious, then I'm all for it. Do you think there will come a time where these labels or or modifiers will become irrelevant and you know everyone will just be as they are i don't think so <laughs> i would i would love to think that we don't use language to separate but it's it's part of it's part of being human, you know, identifying something as being different. We have all of these colors in the spectrum that we as humans can see, and we define blue as being blue. We define red as being red. What I would love is for the language to not say blue is better or red is better, but to say they are all part of the light spectrum. That's where I would love to see the language move, but I, I don't think um, they'll become irrelevant. I think we'll constantly wrestle in our humanity with the way we use language. Speaking of colors, uh, blood orange, I think, <laughs> conjures up a very kind of specific mm. idea or, or, you know, specific image, specific mentality. Um, what was the significance of blood orange for you? Yeah. So it's very specific. I'm so glad that was a great segue. <laughs> so, so the book is called blood orange night and the title comes from a scene right in the middle of the book um, where I realize, holy cow, all of these neurological symptoms that I've been having that have been terrifying that have made me think I might have MS or a brain tumor. I realize it's the medication my doctor has prescribed and I've got to get off. So 
Um, in that scene, I don't want to give away too much of the book, but I decide I've got to start cutting my dose, which I do. I wake up to my daughter crying. She's one and a half and I'm still nursing. Um, I run downstairs to get her out of her crib. And just as I'm like putting my hands under her little, little bread loaf body, I have this explosion of heat and light. And I just remember the room being filled with this neon blood, orange and red. And we later discover that I've had a stroke. So for me, the significance is both the incredible, shocking danger of this kind of drug um, and, and the fact that we don't know what it does in the brain. And then also in, in that scene, when I wake up and I can barely move and I can't speak, I spend the entire night getting up on all fours and crawling out of that room. And there was this animal ferocity that I discovered that night that has, has lifted me out and has become sort of my way of being in the world, this realization that I do want to be alive and thriving and contributing. We often hear the word euphoria, I think, tossed around when taught, you know, when talking about, you know, like, oh, someone, you know, someone did mushrooms and they, you know, they had this, you know, euphoric sensation. Um, what, what you just described, would you, would you consider that a, a euphoria in, in the sense that it, it allowed you to realize where you needed to, 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 to get to? That is such an interesting question. The, the experience, I think the way I'll describe it, it was so overwhelming. It wasn't pleasurable by any means. I really thought I was dying. It was the, I, you know, I fell to the floor. I could feel the carpet fibers shoved into my face. And I, th I was thinking, oh my gosh, I think I'm dying. Is this how you die? And it was, but it was so physical there was no fear. And maybe that's where that sense of euphoria, because there wasn't this sense of, uh, of terror. There was just, I believe I'm dying. And in a certain sense, I also love the word ecstasy because the origin is like being outside of oneself, sort of outside of the ego. And so I think that's where we can knit that together because in that experience and also the experience of going through you know, 14 to 15 months of benzodiazepine withdrawal, I kind of got everything that was me, that was my ego felt as though it was stripped away. And so there was something new that had to grow. And I think it's been a slow burn euphoria, Dan. <laughs> yeah. How would you describe your relationship now with your doctor and with medication, ph pharmaceuticals? Um, I have, you know, I didn't continue to see Dr. Amazing by any means. Um, and I'll just leave that there. I, I do still see Dr. Kate, who is the doctor that initially tried to get me off the benzodiazepines. I feel as though I have a very healthy relationship with Western medicine. I see it as being um, like, uh, I talk about it as a, a toolkit in our wellness toolkit. And 
we often have the sledgehammer. That's Western medicine. And I know now that it's a sledgehammer. And if I have an emergency, if, if I'm having a grand mal seizure, though that's when um, that kind of medication is, is useful. We also know a lot about chemistry. So I'm just aware that it's one of the tools and there are numerable other tools. I'm a big advocate for acupuncture, um, for, I mean, exercise. I'm just like, you know, you know, run my beautiful withdrawers, run, you know, there's something that the body, if you give it a chance, has the most incredible pharma, pharmacopoeia within it. Um, so I'm not anti by any means, but I am very, very much an advocate for intelligent use of various modalities, including um, pharmaceuticals. You know, a lot, there's a lot of people, you know, there's, um, there was a, a, th a story here about, um, uh, uh, ho holistic medicine, uh, like a, like a holistic, it's the wrong word, but, uh, um, you know, being, being, uh, under attack for his, you know, uh, practices. And then, you know, you have people speaking out against something like chiropractor, you know, chiropractic, um, are, are we in a way maybe too, standoffish in in our dismissal of other ways of healing or 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 other sort of other maybe treatments that aren't as mainstream oh i yeah i think that's a fair statement because i think you know if we if we look historically when you know when we kind of moved into the scientific revolution and then medicine became a huge um huge force in our lives, we began to look at, at doctors and their understanding of the human body as kind of being gods. And so we're slowly kind of shifting into, into a way for, you know, there's, we have this Cartesian division between mind and body. And I, I'm hoping that we move back into a softer kind of balance between those two, because the ridiculous thing is that Western medicine is still very young. There are practices of medicine like acupuncture, Tai Chi that go back so, so much longer. And, and yet we view them as being alternative, which to us simply means it's a devaluing. Um, I think we have to be just as intelligent about looking at these other systems it doesn't mean that we just embrace them wholeheartedly. There, you know, there's always been kind of snake oil charmers, but um, I think for me, I have found modalities in both. And um, the people that embrace, uh, you know, oils and tinctures and homeopathics and say Western medicine is a crock, I think they're as imbalanced in their perspective as people that only go for the Western medical model. People who read Blood Orange Night, whether they've been through addiction, whether they, you know, known somebody who has been through addiction or, or not, is there something specific you want them to learn or, or, or take away? So I would, I would say there, there are probably two to three things. Um, and I love this question because when I was writing it, 
I said to myself, sure, I could write this incredibly dramatic story about someone who became, you know, as I said, unintentionally dependent upon a drug prescribed by my doctor. And the people that have had that experience will read it and they will feel resonance. But I wanted to write a story that spoke to the greater human condition of something that knocks you off your feet and leaves you on your knees trying to figure out who will I be now? So the book is, um, my hope is that sense of what happens when you experience a trauma in your life, a grief, an illness, and how, how we kind of get back up again and reform who we are and become wholer, more joyful human beings, what that experience is. And to the specific case of benzodiazepines, I wanted people to be more deeply informed and to have a narrative that would give them the experience as much as possible of what it's like to go through a withdrawal like that so that they would have a degree of caution and really begin to think outside of the lexicon that we have. And when they go to their, their doctor say, hey, you know, I read this book and it sounds like these are really, really strong and highly addictive. Can you tell me about that? Like, do I really need that? Or can I just, you know, is there something else available to me? Um, so those two things. And then I also just wanted a beautiful story. I wanted to tell a beautiful story about love and connection to family, you know. We, in the last four or five years, Hollywood has made a lot of films about addiction. There was Brain on Fire. Uh, there was that one with Timothy Chalamet, whose name escapes me. Of course, uh, Caitlin Deaver was in one. Any, any thoughts of turning Blood Orange Night into a, into a film? Absolutely. I, I would love it. I would love it. And, and what my hope is, is, you know, we spoke about having a new narrative around addiction or dependency. I would love to be able to be part of that narrative. So if Blood Orange Night got picked up as a movie or a series, I would be very happy. <laughs> would, now, if they asked you to write, write the screenplay, is that something you would do? Um, I think what I would, if they asked me to do that, I would love to be part of a group because I'm not an experienced screen screenwriter. Um, I'm an experienced writer, but that's a different form. And right. so I would love to contribute because I have, the story has so many other parts that got cut out um, that it would be really fun to be able to incorporate those aspects in. Well, the book is Blood Orange Night. It is out as of July the 14th. Yes, through June 14th, June 14th. June 14th, yes. So it is out now through Simon and Schuster. Melissa Bond, thank you so much for your time today. What a pleasure. You are, you are tremendous, amazing yeah. questions. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. And that was my conversation with the journalist, poet, and author, Melissa Bond. Her new memoir, Blood Orange Night, is out now, available through Simon and Schuster. That does it for me today. 
my thanks to Melissa Bond. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you again soon. Bye for now.